Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 5, Episode 15, brought to you by Lifetree at PayingRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name, again, is Rick. I'm uh, author of a bunch of books. Uh, The last one that came out was called The God Who Fights For You. That was last year, and before that, Spiritual Grit. Actually, a really timely book for right now. If you're... uh, wanting to learn as much as you can from Jesus in the midst of this worldwide crisis. Spiritual Grit was written to help myself and um, other followers of Jesus lean into difficult times and get everything out of those difficult times that that, uh, Jesus intends. So Spiritual Grit is the name of that book. It's a couple of... uh, devotion books that were developed by my friend Michael Kiefer, Michael Kiefer to go with the main book, ones for teenagers and ones for adults. So we'll put links to all these things on the podcast page for this. Just go to PayingRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. Also, I'm the editor of the Jesus Centered Bible, and uh, over the Easter weekend, our uh, CEO, Tom Schultz, had a great idea of um, offering to the first 100 churches that took us up on it to send two cases of Jesus Center Bibles for free to their church to pass out in a kind of a drive-through Bible distribution thing. And we had over 100 churches that jumped on that and did it over Easter weekend. Some of them bought even more at a much reduced uh, price, bought even more copies of the Bible and and just handed them out to whoever uh, uh, came through the drive-in line at their church. So uh, it was very successful and made me think about how the Jesus Centered Bible is a fantastic gift for people right now who have spiritual questions and are wondering about the big, big questions in life um, and are surrounded by negative news all the time. What better way to plant hope like seeds that will come up in the spring? Um, so uh, go ahead and check out the the different colors and different covers for the Jesus Center Bible. You can check the link on our podcast page or just go to group.com and search for Jesus Centered Bible. So uh, here we are in the 10th episode of a new series that I'm calling Foundations. I guess it's not so new anymore. It's two and a half months into it. But uh, Foundations is really sort of an open-ended series We're exploring foundational truths that are connected to Jesus and his mission in our lives. And today, we're going to uh, explore what uh, what we just went through this last weekend. I'm calling this Up from the Grave. So Jesus, of course, we celebrate his resurrection on Easter Sunday, and I bet you celebrated it in a way that you never have in your entire life (laughs) this weekend. But when we celebrate Easter, we're really saying, we're really celebrating the promise of an empty tomb. And that empty tomb can be treated like a metaphor and like a catchphrase and stuff like that. Saw a lot of catchphrases this weekend coming from churches, but it's actual, it's an actual reality. And, uh, and so much of what our life with Jesus is all about 
is dependent on that resurrection. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, then everything that he came to do is not only under question, but uh, didn't work. <laughs> I mean, part of the, the, the central uh, function of Jesus coming to the earth was to overcome death once and for all. So if he, did, if he didn't overcome death, all we're left with is a bunch of um, interesting teachings told by a liar because Jesus couldn't have been more clear about what, what he came to do. And as, as the time got closer, he was even more specific with his disciples. And on the road to Emmaus, after his resurrection, he explains to two of his disciples exactly why he came. And he does it with some consternation because they still don't seem to understand that his primary purpose in coming was to overcome death. That is the freedom from captivity that the Messiah uh, promises and brings. But the people were so locked up in their own understanding of what the Messiah came to do that they, they couldn't quite understand that Jesus had something much bigger than they could ever imagine in mind. Freedom from the penalty of the law, and therefore freedom from following every little detail of that law. Instead, now they follow a person, Jesus, and they have his spirit within them, empowering them to live the life he's called them to. So up from the grave is really the, the uh, turning point in, in not only world history, but in our history. So in the last episode, we wallowed around in the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. It's a, such an epic story. It's one of the longest Jesus encounters that you'll find in scripture. Um, and this, this act of, of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead after he'd been in the, in the grave for three days, one of the profound things about this, think about this now, Jesus delays his trip to the tomb of Lazarus to time it so that he gets there three days after Lazarus has been in his tomb for three days. And he does this very particularly. He doesn't just casually wait this long. He chooses how long to wait. So to make sure that Lazarus has been in that tomb for three days. Then he calls Lazarus out of his tomb after three days. And not that long from, uh, from that moment, Jesus himself emerges after three days in the tomb. Three days was the uh, length of time that ancient Jews gave to say, yes, he's certainly dead. <laughs> Reminds me of, you know, a Monty Python skit. In fact, I'm going to talk about a Monty Python skit in just a minute. But the, the whole idea that, that the person is certainly dead just reminds me of, I can't even remember the Monty Python skit I'm thinking of right now, but he's definitely, definitely dead. And uh, so Jesus foreshadows his own um, emergence from the tomb by calling Lazarus out of his tomb three days after he'd been there. So this is a miracle that just spreads like wildfire through the ancient world. It's such an extraordinary happening that uh, everyone is talking about it. Everyone knows, oh my gosh, a thing that can't happen just happened. And it highlights for me something that we don't often talk about, and that is that death is, is a major theme in the life of Jesus. Um, it bookends his life and filters like a thread through all of his ministry. So if you remember, he's born in a climate of death when Herod orders all the young boys under the age of two near Bethlehem to be killed. This is, this is called the slaughter of the innocents. So his parents flee to Egypt with him to keep him from being slaughtered. And 
And so Jesus is his his very birth causes the death in an indirect way of all of these innocent little boys. And think of the grief and the tears and the 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 absolute devastation that that uh, his hometown and the uh, the actually the the region around Bethlehem lives in because of this brutal slaying that Herod orders. Um, along the way in his ministry, he raises many from the dead, not just Lazarus. Um, happens more than once. It happens with Tabitha, the little girl that everyone thought was was dead, and Jesus said, no, she's just sleeping. This was one of his early miracles. Um, it, it, it happens, I think, one or two other times as well. And an interesting thing that we don't often think about when the uh, temple curtain is torn in two, when Jesus on the cross says, I commit myself to you, my father, and gives up his spirit. And the temple curtain is torn in two. But it says also that when that happens, the bodies of godly men and women come forth from their graves in the cemetery near Jerusalem um, when all this happens. That, that It's incredible. This, this little thing, I bet you've never heard a sermon preached in your church about the bodies of the godly men and women being released from their graves when Jesus gives up his spirit on the cross. That's an extraordinary moment. I can't even imagine what that would have been like for these men and women who had been dead and buried for maybe years to emerge out of the cemetery back into the land of the living. I mean, talk about extraordinary. This is like nothing we've seen even on TV. Uh, you won't see that in The Walking Dead. So Jesus, when he uh, explains his mission on earth, he's, he targets death as his enemy, the foe he's come to defeat. And when he conquers death, leaving his own tomb after three days, he wins hope for us all. So in this episode, let's just focus on what hope is, the kind of up-from-the-grave hope that Jesus brought us. What what kind of hope is that? Let's explore how Jesus lives in hope and gives us hope. So one thing to think about right now in the middle of uh, Corona land right now and being surrounded by uh, news that is just, it's like one punch to the stomach after another. You know, I, I have a little uh, website that's uh, sitting down in the dock of my computer so I can call it up every day from uh, Johns Hopkins. It's their worldwide coronavirus tracker and i check it every day because i want to see if if we are indeed flattening the curve around the world and one of the things that this website tracks is the number of deaths per country even by county in the united states you can track it th at that level and the sort of unintended consequence of taking a look at stuff like that including for me is that i'm much more focused on death than i am typically in my normal everyday life. Death is all around us right now. It's in our face. And we're reminded that no matter if you're a celebrity or an athlete or a politician, you can be in the crosshairs of death. Uh, every day there's a new person that I'm shocked that uh, has died from the coronavirus. I am a huge jazz fan, as I've mentioned on the podcast before, but I like old school jazz. I don't like smooth jazz or any of the other jazz hybrids that are out there. I like old school uh, you know, trio for some quintet jazz. And a lot of those old jazz masters live in New York City, and a lot of them have succumbed to the virus. 
it's extraordinary. For a while, it was almost every day I was hearing about another one of my jazz heroes who was who had succumbed to the virus. So we're just surrounded on every side by the specter of death. And death in this case with the virus seems like an assassin. You know, it's still not the the, the primary way that uh, that that people die in our culture. That's heart disease and traffic accidents and cancer. All of these are primary ways for that that deaths happen in our culture. But those seem different than this virus. This virus seems almost like it has a personality, like a mind of its own, like it is stalking us. And, and that's the kind of tension it creates for us. That skit I mentioned before from Monty Python that I remember when I was a kid, um, it still makes me laugh just thinking about it. But uh, when I was a kid, I was a huge Monty Python fan. I had a very dry sense of humor. I still do, I guess. Um, and I, that, made, that meant that I loved the bizarre, dry sense of humor that Monty Python had. And there was a famous skit where John Cleese brings in a parrot he's just bought from a, from a pet store um, because the parrot is, in fact, dead. And what he had discovered half an hour after he bought the parrot and brought it home is that it had been nailed to its perch, and that's the only reason why it was standing on its perch. And so John Cleese has a like a, a four-minute back and forth with Eric Idle, the store clerk, about his dead parrot. And Eric Idle is insisting that the parrot's not really dead. So John Cleese has to go to extraordinary um, measures to prove to the clerk that his parrot is, in fact, dead. So it's a, if you like stupid, sardonic, dry humor, uh, go to go to YouTube and look up Monty Python dead parrot skit. Uh, maybe we'll put a link on that uh, on this on our podcast page for it as well. But um, it's really funny, and but we're we're actually laughing at death when we watch this skit. But it's a safe kind of laughter because we're laughing at a parrot's death, not a real person's death. So death in general is not something we feel very free to laugh at. We can laugh at almost anything, but death is a bit, little bit off limits unless it's death in a certain kind of uh, context, like this funny Monty Python skit. If it's the death of a parrot, then we give ourselves permission to laugh, but we don't laugh at death in general. We take death very seriously as human beings. And of course, Jesus takes death very seriously as well, and also he doesn't take death very seriously. He is both of those things at the same time. Yes, he, it, we even see in his uh, engagement with uh, Mary and Martha at the tomb of Lazarus that he is ex- incredibly upset about what his friends are going through. And he's not only weeps, but he's angry, as we talked about in the last episode. So we know he takes death seriously, but at the same time, he doesn't take it seriously because he's defeated this foe. You don't, you're not afraid of a defeated foe. Jesus wasn't afraid of death in the first place. He is made out of light and life. His very being is the constitution of life. And so when he says death is an enemy, it also means that it's contrary to his very nature. So, but even more so after coming up from the grave, death is no longer a foe that has any teeth in it. Uh, uh, famously, uh, Paul says, death, where's your victory? Where's your sting? Jesus took the sting out of the bee. That is death. So, uh, so 
Jesus does enter in to our fear. He understands why we're afraid, but also simultaneously he knows we have nothing to fear anymore. And part of what he's inviting us into that brings hope into our darkness is this same attitude toward death that he has. Yes, I take it seriously, and I simultaneously don't take it seriously. Let's take a look at something Paul wrote in his first letter to the Jesus followers in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 57. In my Jesus-centered Bible, the, the heading over this passage of scripture is, it reads, the mystery of the resurrection. So again, this is 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 57, the mystery of the resurrection. Here's what Paul says. What I'm saying, dear brothers and sisters, is that our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever. But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. And then he quotes this passage from Isaiah. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? That's what I was mentioning before. The bee sting is taken out. For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just read those last two sentences, last three sentences to you again. For sin, Paul says, is the sting that results in death. That bee sting of death, once we're stung by it, it, it translates the toxicity of death into our bodies. So sin is that sting. And the law, he says, gives sin, the sting of death, gives sin its power. The law gives it its power. And then he says, but thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's why he can ask, hey, death, where's your sting now? So Jesus has given us victory over the penalty of sin. The clear penalty that the law sets forth, he's given us victory over that, and therefore victory over death uh, because of what Jesus has done. So the, uh, a couple of questions here uh, to, to ponder. If sin is the sting that results in death and the law gives sin its power, well, what exactly does Jesus mean by the law giving sin its power? Now, here we know that uh, because Jesus dealt with this extensively, and then Paul goes to minute detail in the book of Romans to explain what exactly this means, that the law gives sin its power. But Jesus came to not abolish the law, but fulfill it, meaning that the law now is contained in the person of Jesus, that now our relationship is not with a set of rules and regulations, but with a person who embodies the law. And our relationship with God has changed from uh, relating to God through a mitigator, which is the law, to a direct relationship with Jesus, who has embodied that law. So now as we sin and, and uh, 
repent and follow, all of those actions are all oriented around a relationship with a real person. The spirit of Jesus has been given to us to live within us. We are now the moving tabernacle of God, the temple of God. The presence of God lives within us, Jesus says. Therefore, the, the embodiment of the law lives within us. Therefore, we are accountable to Jesus, not to a list of rules and regulations. We are accountable to the spirit within us. He wants us to grow uh, sensitive hearts, sensitive ears, a sensitive soul to the nudges and the whispers and sometimes the screams and shouts of his spirit who is guiding us from the inside out. So the question, uh, when Jesus says the law gives sin its power, what he means here is that we would not know what is right and wrong unless we had the law. We would not be under accountability to breaking the, uh, the, the law if the law hadn't been given to us in the first place. And so sin really uh, is a result of us disobeying the law, doing what God has told us not to do. And therefore, sin gets its power from the standard that's been given to us in the law. Well, now that, that sting is gone because we are no longer accountable to this outside list of rules and regulations. We're simply accountable to Jesus. So when he defeats death, he defeats the process that we were forced to live by under penalty of death, where, whereby we either follow the law in all of its detail without fail, or we offer repeated sacrifices to pay for the uh, penalty of breaking the law. And those re repeated sacrifices had to involve death. So because Jesus' death encompasses all deaths, he has once and for all um, given us freedom from the penalty of the law. So, so the law gives sin its power because we would not know we were breaking the God's, God's commandment or uh, we would not know we would be violating uh, the culture of the kingdom of God unless the law showed us our violation. Uh, the second question that comes out of this is when um, Paul says at the very end, but thank God he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. The question is, well, what exactly does victory over death mean in our everyday life then? Does it mean that we won't physically die? How could it possibly mean that? We know from personal experience that, that uh, those who follow Jesus and those who don't, they all die. We all are headed towards physical death. The salvation of Jesus has not brought us immortality in the physical realm. That's not something he's promised and that's not something he's delivered. So what does victory over sin and death really mean then for everyday life? It means, I think, that the, the specter of death that hung over us is no longer um, a serious foe. Yes, our, our physical death is a reality, and we've been reminded about that over and over again right now. But the sting of that, the real, the real essence of death is a functional separation from God, which is a kind of death that has no hope in it. When we have hope, 
in Jesus, when our relationship with him promises us life eternal, because he has life eternal, then we have hope, no matter what we're facing. The victory over death means that this foe that we so feared now has been unmasked. It's like that scene in The Wizard of Oz when uh, Dorothy's little dog, Toto, uh, pulls away the curtain from the fearsome wizard who is blustering with fireballs coming out of his head on the screen and trying to intimidate Dorothy and her friends into backing down and Toto pulls away the curtain and you just see a guy move, working levers. And in fact, once the guy is exposed, he immediately becomes not a bully anymore. Isn't that like most bullies? Once they're exposed for what they really are, they become meek and sniveling. And that's as, as, it's essentially what's happened to death. That's what's happened to Satan, who is the author of death. He is no longer a foe to be worried about. He is the unmasked Wizard of Oz now. We see him for what he really is. So victory over death is Toto pulling the curtain apart, pull, pull, pulling the curtain away to reveal the hollowness and lack of real teeth that death has. Once death is exposed and declawed, it's not a threat anymore. So um, I think it's interesting to, to um, consider what Paul's trying to say here about the resurrection and what this victory really means. Uh, the second thing I'd like us to, to take a look at here is in, from John chapter 12. What can we learn about Jesus's uh, attitude towards death and uh, what his promise of hope is by uh, looking more closely, slowing down and jumping into the mud puddle of John 12 when Jesus predicts his death. So let's just read that real quick. John 12, 20 through 29. Some Greeks who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration paid a visit to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. They said, sir, we want to meet Jesus. Well, Philip told Andrew about it, and they went together to ask Jesus. So the entry to this story is some, some Greeks wanted to meet Jesus, and so they went to one of the disciples, and he grabbed another disciple, and they went to Jesus to ask him about it. And Jesus, in a strange way, doesn't really reply to the request to meet with the Greeks. Instead, he tells them something else. Uh, this is one of those moments where we just skip over this because it's a mud puddle. They think, oh, that's Jesus for you. He doesn't really respond to their actual question. He responds a different way, but um, it'll be good for us to wallow in this for just a minute. So Jesus, here's Jesus' reply when they come to ask him if he'll meet with these two, with these Greeks who had come from Jerusalem over the Passover celebration. Jesus says, now is the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and it dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me because my servants must be where I am. And the Father will honor anyone who serves me. Now my soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? But this is the very reason I came. Father, bring glory to your name. Then a voice spoke from heaven, saying, I have already brought glory to my name, and I will do so again. When the crowd heard the voice, some thought it was thunder, while others declared an angel had spoken to him. What a bizarre little passage. So 
first, let's just tackle the obvious thing. He doesn't reply to their request to meet these Greeks. And I think the reason why is that Jesus is saying, you know what? Um, I don't have any time anymore to meet with people. Um, you guys don't understand. I'm on the precipice of a cliff right now. I am about to head into my purpose. I don't have time to hang out for a day and talk with these Greeks. You'll have to do that later, essentially is what he's saying, because his mission has become pinpoint focused. And I think one of the reasons why he doesn't really even reply to the request is at this point, Jesus is very aware of what he's about to enter into and how huge this is, how daunting it is, the thought that not only of the physical torture he's about to go through, but the mental, emotional, and spiritual torture he's about to experience, being separated from his father for the first time in his existence, that he will be apart from his father. He will take on the penalty of sin for a time in order to vanquish that penalty. The thought of it must have been absolutely excruciating. And you know how when you're facing something very painful, your focus gets narrowed, you, you, you shunt away distractions. Well, that's the place that Jesus is here. He's shunting away all distractions to focus on this huge thing that he's about to enter into. So it's interesting that Jesus here is pointing out sort of a, a parable of hope uh, by focusing on how wheat or really any crop grows. And if we think about this whole seed planting process that's planted in nature, it's a, it's a living parable for us. Um, what he's talking about here is that when you plant a kernel of wheat in the soil, that kernel of wheat actually dies first. And in its death, uh, out of it springs life. That's how the seed works in the first place. Yeah, that's why if you're a farmer, it takes faith just to plant because you're planting seeds in the earth and then covering over those seeds with soil and then expecting the death to life cycle to work underneath that soil so that new life grows up in the soil. So of course, um, the Trinity could have uh, planted any kind of process of, of life in, in our midst, but the process they planted was a cycle of death to life on purpose because this cycle of death to life is fundamental to the nature of Jesus. Um, unless there is a death, life cannot emerge. So if we ask ourselves, well, what truth about hope is Jesus trying to plant in us? Um, I, I think part of what he's trying to do here is say that the little deaths that we experience in our life have the potential to lead to new life. And that, in fact, all new growth, all new life goes through a process first of something dying. Uh, you can look at it this way. If, you're, if you want to get married, you have to die to the single life. You have to agree, I will no longer live alone. Now I will take on a spouse. The two will become one. And, and to to experience the joy and the life of that, I must let something else die in my life. Or if you're um, thinking of taking a challenging new job or, or a, career, a career change, in order to do that, you have to lay down the thing um, that you're doing now. You have to let it die. Uh, this death to life cycle 
is implanted all around us and all through the regular rhythms of our life. The hope that Jesus is trying to plant in us here is, hey, I want you to see death in a certain light. Death actually precedes life. So don't camp out on the death part of the cycle. Yes, it's dark and alone. That's what he says about the kernel of wheat. It, it gets planted in the soil and it remains alone. And you can't feel more bereft than when you're alone and it feels like something important to you is dying and won't come back. Maybe you've already have that experience right now in your life. That something that you thought would last forever is now gone. It's, it's died. And what Jesus is trying to encourage us in is don't live in the death part of the cycle. Don't stay there. Recognize that, that this death precedes the cycle of life in your life, in your life, that a new form of life is going to sprout up. It's not going to look like the kernel that was planted in the ground. Whatever that life is, it's going to look remarkably different than the thing that has died because it will have new life in it. So how is life related to death in our life? Well, as I said, death is the prerequisite for it. There's not a thing that you can think of, even getting fit. The way that we grow muscle tissue uh, by working out and lifting weights and so forth, the way that we do that is by breaking down the muscle we have now. It's a thousand little deaths. And those broken down muscles release toxins into our body as we are working out. And that's why it's important to drink a lot of fluids, to wash those toxins out of our body after we have broken down the muscle tissue. It's in breaking down that muscle tissue that new muscle grows. And that, that's how we become um, more muscular as we, as we get fit. It's preceded by a thousand little deaths. So Jesus is saying always, no matter what direction you look at in life, life always emanates from death. And therefore, don't worry about the death part of the cycle because there is a life part of the cycle as well. And it is always an operation as you are connected and um, embedded in me. As long as you are embedded in the source of life itself, death will never overshadow life in your life. In your life. life will always rule in your life as long as you are attached to the source of that life. The last question is, well, why would the Trinity create this cycle of death to life in nature in our life in the first place? Why would they choose this way of um, bringing about life. Well, it does foreshadow and invite us into his own journey because from the dawn of time, when man first betrayed God's law and brought death into the world and made for the first time sin something that we had to deal with, from the dawn of that time, death has been at work in us. And therefore, from the dawn of time, God in his beauty and his artistry has chosen to take the reality of death in its, all of its forms and plant in us a cycle that leads back to life if we will only come to him, the source of life. This cycle at work in us where 
death has no longer any victory in us, the, the precursor to this is planted all around us from the dawn of time. From the dawn of time, men could see that new life resulted from death. From the dawn of time, this parable of the, the cycle of a emerging life was all around us to remind us that death is not the end. And so whatever death you're experiencing right now during this time, no matter what it is, I just want to encourage you that Jesus can't help himself. He is right now working the cycle of life within your death, whatever that is. I thought it'd be good to just close by reading the account of the resurrection from John 20. We'll close with this. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. This, by the way, is John, <laughs> who's writing these words. And she said, they've taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. Well, Peter and the other disciple started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Apparently, John was a much faster uh, runner than Peter. He stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there, while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and saw and believed, for until then they still hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. Well, then they went home. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they've taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they put him. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her, who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you've taken him away, tell me where you put him and I'll go and let him, go and get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, which is Hebrew for teacher. No, don't, don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to the father. But go find my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Well, Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I've seen the Lord. And then she gave him his message. Well, that Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. And as he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Again, he said, peace, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. And then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone their sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. And one of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. And they told him, we've seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands and put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side. Well, eight days later, the disciples were together again. And this time, Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace, peace be with you, he said. Then he looked to Thomas. Put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. 
Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told them, you believe because you've seen me, but blessed are those who believe without seeing me. There you have it. The account of Jesus up from the grave from John 20. And the hope here is that from, from the, the dawn of time, the Trinity has determined that death will never have the last word. Life gets the last word. And that's true also in your life. No matter what you're going through right now, life gets the last word when you're a follower of Jesus. Hey, gang, thanks for listening. This is paying ridiculous attention to Jesus. You can check out the links I've mentioned today on today's episode by going to paintridiculousattentiontojesus.com. You're looking for season five, episode 15. So take a look at those links, especially that uh, dead parrot skit from Monty Python, if you're if you have a dry sense of humor. So this is, again, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. You can subscribe on iTunes or Google Play, and we'll talk again next time. <laughs>